There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Housing continues to be firmly in the spotlight today, as the latest DAF.ie report indicates a soaring rise in rental prices nationwide. Finnegan Senator and leader of the Shannon Regina Doherty joins us in studio, alongside Social Democrats TD Holly Kearns. On International Nurses Day, the INMO highlights the impact of the pandemic on our nation's frontline staff and gives a stark warning of a return to pre-pandemic hospital overcrowding. Protests at Cork University Maternity Hospital today as women recount the trauma of attending appointments alone. And as the Brits Music Awards trials a 4,000-strong audience last night, we look ahead to the possibility of the return of live music events. And festival director Melvin Benn says there's no reason why the electric picnic can't go ahead. Get in touch via Twitter and the hashtag TonightVMTV. Our first guest this evening is Aidan Regan, Associate Professor in the UCD School of Politics and International Relations. So, how have we got to a situation where rents have doubled in a decade that we seem to be back with the old Celtic Tiger nonsense? Oof, if we had, a, if we had an hour, Matt, we'd be able to get through it. But I mean, obviously the, the longer term or the long explanation is that we had a highly financialized banking system that collapsed and the government had to respond to that when bank debt and sovereign debt came joined together at the hip and they invited international investment funds to buy up many of those distressed assets and you had an economic recovery and all of a sudden the international market changed and interest rates came down and a flood of capital came into the country and bought up lots of property and with a lot of demand, a lot of new new workers, a lot of demographic change, demand went up, supply is low and prices have followed and all of a sudden you have a whole new generation of people effectively priced out of buying their own home and paying extortionate rents. And isn't it worse that the situation is that the rents are now higher than mortgages, which is shocking to many people who feel that rent is something that they pay almost in the interim while they get together their deposit to be able to buy their own home. Yeah, and I think this is a qualitative change for those born in the late 80s or early 90s, whereas in the past, a lot of, that, a lot of those people in their early 30s would have expected to purchase their own home, would have been in a position to buy a reasonable house or an apartment, but now they're paying 30, 40, in some cases 50, 60% of their disposable income on relatively low quality uh, you know, housing that they just simply can't afford to save to put down uh, a deposit. But on top of that, unlike in the past, unlike in the early 2000s, it's also much more difficult to get a mortgage in the sense that mortgage rules are stricter. We had a very liberalized mortgage market in the early 2000s, whereby effectively most people could get a mortgage. That's not the case anymore. So you have people who are on reasonably good salaries, paying pretty high rents, but not being able to buy affordable housing. 
And is there not another issue that they've been told that they should make do with the idea of renting for life rather than buying? But in addition to that particular thing, they've been told to go live in apartments where Irish people seem to want to live in a house with a bit of grass in the back garden and a driveway to the front. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about constructing one, two bed apartments in the city. And that's the kind of future type of accommodation people will live in. And they're comparing that to, say, cities like Vienna or Stockholm or Zurich. But the reality is in most continental Western European countries, the housing stock, the apartment stock were built through urban planning, through housing associations to accommodate high quality, family friendly living. What's happening in Dublin, what's happening in Ireland is very different. It's a much more, if I can put it, American style type of living, whereby the assumption is you get squeezed into relatively small accommodation and it's not the ideal place to, to raise a family. That's not to say we can't or shouldn't shift our culture towards having family-friendly apartment living. I think that is something that should be, uh, you know, we should move in that direction, particularly in our town centres. But there's a deep cultural expectation in this country that you own your own home. That cultural expectation doesn't exist, for example, in places like Germany. So it's difficult to compare, you know, places like Ireland to Germany when the housing stock, the financing of housing, the institutions are completely different. Aidan Regan, thank you very much for being with us here on The Tonight Show. Well, we're joined by Fine Gael's Regina Doherty and the Social Democrats' Holly Kearns. It's hard to know nearly where to start with all of this at this stage, but on the issue of renting, do, you, do the Irish people really want to be renting long-term? Because that has been a strategy and encouragement of Fine Gael governments over the last decade. Yeah, well, I don't think it has, but the answer to the question that you asked me is no. And I think Aidan is right. It's in our genes. It's nearly like in our DNA that when you grow up, you can rent for a few years when you're a young one and you save your, your, you know, your mortgage deposit, you get your mortgage and you buy your house with the grass in the front and the back garden. That's just the way we're built. That's what we expect to be able to do. And it's what we should be able to do, which is why, uh, and I, you know, in a kind of a weird way, I very much welcome that we're right back into the centre of politics as normal, because we've had a whole year and a bit talking about COVID and housing is probably the biggest issue that we have to resolve in this country. And it's nice to be able to talk about it again. We have two major pieces of legislation um, that are coming in the next number of weeks. The land, um, the affordable housing bill is starting in the Shannon on Monday, and that's going to do four very significant things. It's going to introduce cost rental. It's going to get our local authorities actually building again something that they haven't done since the 1990s. We're going to increase our part fives to 20% when they were always only 10% of the bills that private developers were due. And then we're going to give um, some people a, a dig out and a handout um, with getting on the property ladder if they can't themselves. And then we have the Land Development Agency bill coming in the next couple of weeks where we'll actually see the state building on land that it already owns. But Holly Kearns, can I turn to you on this? Because not everybody is going to be in a position to be able to buy. We've always had a cohort of people who have had to rent and often needing state support to do so. Do you think that the, the initiatives being announced by this government are going to start addressing these issues? Absolutely not. And just to initially go to the point of renting and, you know, the comparisons in Europe and all of those things, important to note that rents have increased in Ireland by 62% over the last 10 years, whereas the EU average is just less than 15%. So there's no comparison there either. And then in relation to the so-called affordable housing bill that the minister is bringing forward, that sounds great. However, what the minister believes affordable is, for example, 400,000 for a home in Cork. It's much more in places like Dublin, the commuter belt. But in order to get a mortgage for that, you'd have to be earning 114,000 a year. So this is very far removed from reality. And you refer to handouts there. People are not looking for handouts. They're looking for, for the, the right to own a home. You said a handout or a dig out. 
And I think that's really insulting to people who've been working very hard for their entire lives and simply can't buy a home because of government policy well, I, time I don't and time think again. Any and sorry, that's... it's not just opposition objecting to this. It's the ERI, or ERSI, the central bank, senior figures in the Department of well, Public Expenditure, it, housing agencies. What's interesting is, is that you choose to talk about a part of a bill that's probably less than 5% of the entire offering of um, the affordable housing scheme. So you know, what would be interesting to know from our perspective is, is where the Social Democrats actually stands on the entire affordable housing scheme. You've made it very clear that you don't agree with the land or the shared equity scheme, but that's a tiny percent of the overall bill. So do you agree with cost rental? Do you agree with the part five increasing to 20%? Do you agree with local authorities actually building houses so that people can buy them and have them as their homes? Like, where do you stand? Well, yeah, obviously we agree with local authorities building But then why focus in on a tiny part of a bill that's probably the most progressive housing bill that has been brought into legislation in about 20 years? It's quite simply untrue that it's the most progressive housing bill in 20 years. We're literally repeating mistakes of the past. So introducing cost rental that we've never had in this country before to make sure that people can rent houses at 25% less than the market value isn't progressive. Increasing the part fives from 10% to 20% isn't progressive. It making quite sure simply that doesn't you know, go local far enough because that the government continues since the 1990s. to fail to, it, well, to make an well, intervention actually, you know related really to investment funds who are spending £53 million a week. Well, <laughs> there's plenty of things that they would do. So what would you do? What parts of it would you change when the affordable housing bill comes? What will you do next week? For example, intervention in relation to cuckoo funds who are spending £53 million a week in and Dublin you, and the community of You already know area. the minister. The two ministers have announced that they're going to do that. Uh, and they met this morning with the Attorney General and probably announced stuff next week. Then how is it that 53 million has been sent, spent a week from Cuckoo Funds buying up you know, I properties think in Dublin? The, the interesting ridiculous. part is, and is that there are so many 50% of properties bought up by a Cuckoo One Fund were left empty because they didn't want to reduce the rents. That drives up rents nationally all over the country. There's, no, there's nobody actually arguing with the fact that there isn't huge amounts of challenges with regard to delivery of all aspects of the housing market, whether it's rental, whether it's affordable, whether it's social, whether it's private, whether it's self-build. We know we have challenges. And what we've done is brought through two very progressive pieces of legislation that will give significant more in the offerings. And what I'm wondering is what the Social Democrats have done other than sniping at the side well, lines, no, the Social Democrats and other opposition parties have put forward solutions, as have, like well, I said, the ERSI, the Central Bank. Well, can I ask like you, just tell me, how would you get rents down from their current high levels? Well, an intervention in relation to cuckoo funds would have a massive impact because when they're buying up... Because if, you have, if they aren't building the apartments at present and they actually are financing a lot of their construction, if we don't get additional supply, are we not going to have an even greater shortage of rental accommodation which would send prices No, up? when they're buying up that many properties and then, for example, like I said recently, a, a, an investment bought up by a cuckoo fund, 50% of the properties were left vacant because they didn't want to reduce the rents. Then we have all of these vacant properties Who because cuckoo funds have no responsibility to the people like the government. Who will the if we don't allow investors to come in and help finance them? The state needs to start building homes. So and of course there's room the for some years, amount of investors. I don't think anybody homes. disputes just, just, that. Just on the point of, where would the state get the money? How much would it invest? And would it not be cheaper for the state to be buying houses rather than apartment blocks, which tend to be much more expensive to construct, which is why the funds have been brought in to do that? Yes, but when the funds leave 50% of houses of a development empty because they don't want to reduce the rent, that rises rent prices across the country and that is directly linked to, to people entering into emergency well, accommodation. Let me go to you, Regina, Currently, 8,000 people in emergency because accommodation. Is there not a problem here as well that a large part of the rental increases has been the failure of the state to build social housing? So the state then goes out and rents 
private accommodation which otherwise would be available for rent in the private sector. There's a, there's a number of problems met over the last number of years. And so first of all, um, institutionally in Ireland, we haven't had investment landlords. We've always had the person who has the one other house or started their life off in an apartment and then bought a house and kept the apartment to rent. That's historically what our landlord um, system has been in Ireland. Over the last number of years, a lot of people have actually come out of that landlord a profession, for want of a better word, and it's not the right word to use, um, because they were either in negative equity and they finally came out of it and they were able to afford to sell, um, or are the likes of Airbnb have come in and taken over that rental market. So we've got those pressures on it. But we've also got the fact that we haven't built anything that we've been able to rent as a country, as private investors, at all, probably, for the best bones of the last 10 Sorry, years. Isn't the real issue what that we the need... state wasn't building they wasn't social building housing, anything. and instead of actually making that investment, has been spending money on the HAP and various other initiatives initiatives so, and that has created in addition further pressures on rent for those in the private so sector. So a lot of what you say is true. So the state didn't have any money to build from 2011 till 2015. We started again in 2016 with 5,000 houses. The next year it was seven and a half. The next year it was 10. So over the last six years, the state has built 85,000 houses. But in the next 10 years, we need to build 350,000. So has the state built it or has the state purchased no, many of no, those houses that, from those who've already built them? No, the, the, the likes of the HAP rentals or the affordable housing schemes are different. These are actual CSO figures of new bills turned on with electricity. So they're actual new bills. Now, obviously, some private people have built those houses, but That's as a point, country... not the state. As a country, we've built 85,000 houses. For the next 10 years, we need to build 350,000 houses. And that's going to cost about 90 billion euros. Now, the state can probably afford about a third of that 90 billion. So there has to be both private developer built and investor financed built for the other two thirds. And so there is a place and a time for all of the inputs into it. And some of them has to be cost rental, some of them have to be rental private. Some of them have to be social, some of them have to be affordable, some of them have to be private dwellings. There's a space for all of that over the next 10 years. And there's a space for people to finance that. What there's not a space for is for people to take advantage of a system, to be able to come in, swoop, buy houses from under the nose of, and in the particular uh, instance last week, it wasn't under the nose why, why of 150 the, why people, it was a housing agency. As if it's so surprised by this. This well, has been highlighted in the media for years now that this practice was going on. One particular honest, estate in Maynooth has got all of the attention and the government is reacting like this is some sort of surprise to yeah, it. Yeah, you know what, it shouldn't be a surprise. And if anybody is acting to you like it was, then I don't, they, you know, it shouldn't have been a surprise because we are aware that the institutional investors have purchased probably about 1% of the entire housing stock in the country in the last number of years. And so they own about 15,000 units, for want of a better word. Most of them are apartments and they buy them to rent. And there is a place for that because we've lost well, the Irish renter or the Irish landlord. the effect of these cuckoo funds? That uh, figure of 1% is actually just factually incorrect. So last year there was 21,000 housing units built and... Um, more than 3,600 of them the were bought up on funds. They own about so that's more like 20%. No, but people are no, sick no. of these figures because you can say them all day that for one, they're incorrect. And for two, the reality is that this is the first generation who will be less likely uh, or, or unable to buy a home, the first generation to be worse off than their parents in relation to being able to buy a home. There are 8,000 people in emergency accommodation. 2,000 of those are homeless people. And there's over 140,000 people on social housing lists. So again, so all of this nobody nonsense. challenging The, the, the rebuilding Ireland uh, plan from the government before uh, to build 25,000 homes, that, that's still yet to happen. That has never happened back in 2016. 
you know? Well, sorry, actually, over and over again, the again, same things. Again, with and respect to you, okay? The Rebuilding Ireland programme was launched in 2016 when we were building nothing. There was no money to be building. So we were only starting at that stage. Year on year, every year, we've gone from five to 10 to 15 to 20,000. Last year, in the middle of a pandemic, the state built 20,000 houses. The CSO figures for the institutional investors are not uh, wrong. They're not my figures. I'm not plucking them from the sky. 3,600. There's 15,100, we'll call them homes, but there's a variety of apartments and houses that are owned by institutional investors. It's less than 1% okay, of the entire housing stock. Well, then the how is everything Holly, going so badly wrong? I, I want to ask you about something else in this ESRI report that came out this week about poverty in Ireland. And it highlighted the extraordinary amount of rent that people have to pay, how that we now have generations who are unable to buy houses like their parents before them were able to do so. But what was most damning as well is that there are many people in their 20s who are earning less money than their parents did a generation ago for the same work and who have much, much higher expenses. What does that say about what this generation of politicians in the last decade has done to the younger generations, giving them nothing and also leaving them with enormous debts that will have to be paid off in the future? So again, I, like, I, I'm not denying, Matt, that there are definitely challenges and there's challenges for different generations. In the 80s, we had mortgage interest rates of near 20% and people had to cope with that. In the 90s, we had an absolute glut of building and everybody was told, go off Those and buy two or three. Those people were still better off at 20% yeah. interest rates so than in this last, generation are in now. The last 10 years we've had to recover from a catastrophic collapse not only in a housing market system but in a banking yeah, system. Yeah but have we recovered we at had... the expense of young people that we tried to restore a generation who had lost a lot so but it... did so at the expense of the younger people coming through who can't afford houses and who are getting paid way less than the generation and before again, them And again what we've recognised in the last number of years is that we've had a youth unemployment product, a problem that arose from the last crisis that we have that we still haven't recovered from and you can see the impact on young people from COVID in the last 20 years has been far has been disproportionate insofar as that maybe the professional classes and the older people who are more settled in their jobs, whom COVID didn't have any impact on their employment. They are challenges, which is why you see the likes of the announcements from Simon Harris of 10,000 apprenticeships every year, which is why you see the likes of retraining coming from Heather Humphreys um, and money from finance to make sure that we have the training schemes to retrain uh, and to, I suppose, re-coordinate people into new professions that have kind of taken schemes, a change in a lift difficulty with year. those attempts to try and make things better for younger people? Look, everyone welcomes uh, apprenticeships and, and training schemes, but ultimately the biggest problem for this generation is that they can't afford to buy a home. And that doesn't just affect my generation, for example, it affects the generation above us because many people are living with their parents. Uh, then so many people just move abroad. I have so many friends and family members who live abroad and would love to move home, but simply can't because they can't afford to buy a home here. And that has a massive knock-on effect on families who are, you know, you know, yeah. millions of miles away from loved ones all the time. And I think the bare minimum that people can expect from their government is whatever you think about opposition TD's policies is to accept the expert advice in relation to housing. People like the RSI, the housing agencies, so, the central again, bank. Again, I have absolutely what no problem with opposition policies. If I knew what your policy was, it would We've be We've tabled helpful. opposition bills Our and motions. Policy is the, lang is the legislation that's coming forward on Monday, which is um, the Affordable Housing Bill, which is going to introduce four significant okay. new measures, and then the Land Development just Agency, which everybody says is a game changer, break, and everybody says that they accept. I both of you a little bit just about Leo Varadkar's promise apparently made at the Parliamentary Party meeting in Fine Gael tonight. Vaccines for all by the end of June. Travel between Ireland and the UK in the summer as well. Can he really deliver that? Well, I think that's definitely our ambition. So the on the basis of the vaccine numbers that are coming in over the next couple of weeks, we'll be able to offer, um, I'm actually able to register for my vaccine tomorrow. 
So we're offering people in their 50s the opportunity to register and you'll be getting your vaccine in the next couple of weeks. Hopefully next week we'll be offering people in their 40s. We're still only in May. So there's no reason why we can't think and expect that people in their 30s and 20s will be offered the opportunity to register in June. Um, and also, I think it's really ambitious for Leo, given the real frustrations that we have in an aviation and an indigenous uh, tourist industry that we allow people from the common travel area um, of Scotland, England, Wales, Northern Ireland and Ireland to be able to reciprocate and travel safely um, and without impedance. Ollie, between is that those the right approach states. given the apparent success of the vaccination programme? Um, I suppose it depends on how the vaccination programme proceeds from here and I hope that everybody vaccinated as soon as they're aiming for Genuinely, I really, really do. I think that's what everybody wants. And I hope as well that we'll use, you know, all of the science available to us. Um, I still don't think it's too late to fully resource the public health team. So if outbreaks in certain areas, they can be properly controlled. Um, we also need to include more community pharmacists, I think, in the rollout of the vaccine, if it's going to escalate to that kind of extent. And that's really important. But also we need to be looking at the use of rapid antigen testing for different events, because, you know, most importantly, I think the, the arts and the hospitality sectors have really suffered. And that is a really useful tool that could be used to make these more safe if they are and going that is something we'll be addressing later on. The panel is staying with us and after the break, the INMO warns of pre-pandemic trolley figures and of a healthcare staff burnout. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Welcome back. Now, the panel is still with us. And on the line, we have Tony Fitzpatrick, Industrial Relations Officer of the Irish Nurses and Midwives Association on International Nurses Day. How much appreciation do you think are your members feeling for all of the work that has been done in the most difficult of conditions over the last 14 months or so? Well, Matt, happy International Nurses Day. And I think it, it would have been a great opportunity for the government on International uh, Nurses Day to recognise the contribution that they've made um, over the last 12, 14 months with regards to the pandemic. And unfortunately, there was International Midwives Day last week as well, and they didn't have failed of that opportunity. So I think on the front line, it's important to recognise what nurses and midwives have done. So for the last 14 months, um, they've been involved in redeploying from theatres to ICUs to respond to the various waves that come along. Um, they've rede redeployed to COVID wards. Um, they've dealt with very traumatic events because visitors couldn't go into those hospitals. They had to be the link with the family in deal dealing with very trying um, conditions at that time. 
Um, we've seen in the community um, where PHNs and CRGNs have had to redeploy into residential services in the private sector. Um, they've had to set up contact tracing. Uh, since January, they've been doing the vaccination programmes. We've been very lucky in Ireland that we have expert vaccinators, whether it's the practice nurses who roll out the children's immunisation programmes, whether it's P PHNs and CRGNs who are involved in the school's vaccination programmes, nurses and midwives in the community and in acute hospitals who have been doing the peer vaccination programmes for many years. So that was a pool of resources that the HSE could tap into. And they've been delivering for the public, delivering for the government and delivering for the HSE. But they don't feel appreciated. Um, they, the mood is certainly changing out there. They've been doing all of this. It's been take, take, take from the government and the HSE. But they've failed to give them a thank you payment, they've failed to recognise their efforts and time has gone. We've heard the Taunishta, we've heard the Taoiseach, we've heard the Minister for Health say that they're going to recognise nurses and midwives and other frontline healthcare workers for the contribution they've made, but they've failed to do, to do so. We've heard their words, we haven't seen their deeds. And while in Northern Ireland, Wales, Scotland, they have given them a thank you payment. They have recognised their contribution and it's really needed now that there's a tangible recognition from government. Well, because I think there was some they, controversy, Tony, in the UK that it was only 1% payment. But would that even that token gesture be enough, do you think? Well, I think in the UK, there's a multifaceted. Straight away in Wales, they give them a payment of 700 euro sterling. In Northern Ireland, there's been a 500 euro after tax sterling payment, as in Scotland. And in addition to that, in Scotland and Wales, they give them an additional 1% in Wales, 4% in Scotland, which has actually been rejected. But that's linked to outstanding pay issues that are outstanding. So I think... You know, at this, this moment of time, there is a claim lodged last November on behalf of uh, the INMO, on behalf of nurses and midwives. Also, the health sector unions together have lodged a claim in that regard. And since November, the government and the HSE have failed to engage on that issue. They've met with us once on the 19th of March. They said, we don't want to go to the WRC, we want to recognise you, um, but they failed to do so. And at this moment in time, they're totally reliant on HSE staff to roll out the vaccination programme. That's going to be ramped up from the 21st. There's a better supply of vaccination, et cetera, um, but they're still short, many okay, vacancies Tony, with regards to vaccination. Senator Regina Doherty. Is the government guilty of taking nurses for granted? I don't think anybody could ever say that we would take nurses or our healthcare professionals for granted. And I think today, and indeed a day like we had last week, is a very important time to recognise the enormous... Recognise with what? Well, OK, so you can do one of two things, or maybe one of three things. And from Tony's perspective, what he's looking for is negotiations around a pay and a recompense for, there's no doubt, the over and above... Um, efforts that has gone into the delivery and of health services. would you support services. that? Do you think uh, well, that there I, should be here, payments I don't made? think you'd find anybody who wouldn't. And so the, the, the response from our health services, and particularly our nurses and our midwives in the last year, has been phenomenal. Now, that's only cheap from my perspective because it's only words. But the government is prepared to sit down, and I'm sorry that they haven't met since the 19th of March, but it is something that we do need to recognise, and that's before we get into the next round of pay-related talks for the public sector deal for so the next So maybe a separate one-off bonus? Like it, the way, you know, the fat cats are able to give themselves big bonuses if the profits come in ahead of expectations. This that, is literally life and so death it, stuff. It's, it's genuinely something that the unions are professional organisations that are doing. And once they get around the table, I know that, that they will do it. But, but on the other side, what we need to do is to recognise, and I think there was a report yesterday,
yesterday that said that our nurses are coming off their ships mentally fatigued. They've had an extraordinary year and they've given extraordinary. So what we need to do now is to give back to them and show that we've heeded what they told us was wrong with the health service before COVID. And it is kind of good to see, not that it's good to see trolley numbers again, but it's good to see we're going back to normal business and delivery of service. We need to recognise what they told us, which is to take out the elements in the acute system and put them into community. And that's the announcement that we had with Slauncher Care yesterday. So well, I know Tommy, everybody... Could it be that maybe what nurses would appreciate more is extra hands on deck if they had more staff to try and take a little bit of the burden off them? Absolutely. And we've heard the HSE come out as if it's uh, crowing nearly that we've 2,000 additional uh, staff gone into the system. But the reality is that we're only back at the numbers we had in the health service in 2007. It must be remembered that 16,000 posts were ripped out of the health service at that stage. So we, yes, we need more people. We need recruitment. Um, all of those elements are good. And, and, and Regina rightly referenced Slauntacare, and we're in favour of Slauntacare. Um, but there needs to be engagement and consultation on all of those various issues. So I think it is important that Regina gets the message and the government gets the message. We're sick and tired of hearing, we appreciate what you do. Here's a clap on the back, etc. And I think some famous uh, football manager once said that a slap on the back is only a few inches away from a kick on the backside. And that's how they're feeling now. We need a response. We need them to actually say, get around the table with us and negotiate something in that regard. But it's not just about that. You're right, about 26,600 healthcare workers were infected with COVID-19. 10% of those, nearly 3,000, are still suffering with long COVID. And, you know, we've been looking for care bundles and referral pathways and specialist care for those nurses and midwives and other healthcare professionals, and it's still not in place. So, again, I'd call on Regina, she's the representative of the, of the government here today, to call on the government to fast-track that, get that in place. We've been looking for it 14 months in and we still don't have it. So it needs to be in place. And it's not just about money and reward, but there is an issue about fatigue out there. We do want to respond. We have responded. Okay. Um, it's time to recognise us. With totally, thank you very much words. for being with us. Holly Kearns, it does cost €21 billion Euro to run the health service this year. I mean, should we be considering spending even more? Yeah, and, you know, Tony rightly highlighted, like, the International Council of Nurses highlighted, you know, in the global nursing workforce, um, severe fatigue after the, the pandemic. And it was back in November, the INMO lodged, um, you know, an emergency thing to, to request kind of compensatory leave on account of the burden they've had to bear. And I think today would have been a really suitable day for that to happen. But, I mean, any time, I think it would be welcome. And, and looking across at other countries, um, giving some kind of reward to nurses, I presume, you know, it's even harder. Um, and then, of course, going forward, we can't go from a COVID crisis to an overcrowding one. And there's things specifically the INMO are looking for. Um, for example, an increase in acute bed capacity at the moment, it's 2.8 per 1,000 people in Ireland. Um, an increase in 25% of, of staffing, gradually, they're looking for. Um, we need work to, you Do know, in terms of recruitment... Do we have all of these nurses and doctors available to us? Or are we going to have to import them from somewhere else? Who well, then ends up having a shortage? I suppose ideally we'd stop exporting them. So many um, nurses would qualify in Ireland and move abroad because uh, pay and working conditions are far better. So we need to work. And, of course, we are also in favour of the Saunders Care policy. Um, Roisin George will be the, the architect of one of them of that particular policy. So I think we all agree on that. But that needs to be escalated. 
you know, when we kind of went into this global pandemic and there was this budget unlike any other, I really thought that that would be the time when it would be really escalated quickly. And I think it's the very least that our nurses deserve after everything that they've been through oh, and everything they've done for this country. Two things is number one, that the four billion announced yesterday um, is over the next three years, but it's front ended. Um, to this year and to next year, which is really good. And I think the extra staff um, are based in the community, which is to take away um, some of the extra pressure, I suppose, on our acute system. We have three new elective hospitals that are going to go to build this year. But the most important thing, I think, and Holly is right, um, is to encourage, and we've seen in the last year, a massive increase uh, on the CAO applicants for our nurses, our midwiferies and our doctors, because there's a huge grow for the huge professionalism and the phenomenal, remarkable, I suppose, flexibility that has been shown by our health service and their dedication. And that's really drawn our younger people to that profession. Okay. And I think that's a real credit to them. I want to move on to the issue of midwifery, the maternity hospitals and the absence of partners for very important moments, including in some cases childbirth. It seems, Holly, that the government wants the people, to men particularly, to be allowed in, and yet it seems to be the hospitals don't want them for whatever reason. What's going on? Why can't they just be instructed to do what everyone thinks they should do? Well, yeah, like you said, it's great now that Finally, the government are saying that they want to allow uh, birthing partners into all stages of the maternity journey. However, that has not been the case throughout this pandemic. Um, we saw last summer, you know, restrictions eased across all of society. You could go to the pub, you could go to a wedding and you still have to go and give birth on your own. Um, but like I said, it is very welcome that finally um, that push has come from government. And there's a couple of things that I think they could still do. You know, back in December, they actually, due to lots of pressure, and important to note that this group in society do not have an organised lobby like other sectors in society. So this was, you know, I think slower than most things to, to, for the kind of realisation of how important this is and, you know, the experience that families are actually experiencing. So then in December, they reclassified partners as essential accompanying persons for the 20-week scan. But then how would they somehow become unessential for the remainder of scans, for most of labour? So, yes, it's great that, you know, and I was delighted to see uh, Tony Hulan saying that in the news the other day, that there is no um, health reasons for this particular rule anymore. You know, nobody understands why it's happening, why hospitals continue. But another thing that the government, the HSC could do is to actually reclassify partners, essential accompanying persons for the entire maternity journey, because that does reclassify things, it makes it different, and it did for the 20-week scan back in December. So I would encourage them to do okay, that. Okay, but Regina, does this suggest that many of the hospitals have been acting as a law unto themselves, despite the fact that they've taken vast sums of money from the state? No, so first of all, I, I just, it wasn't the government that stopped partners from going. Um, it was the medical advice I didn't and say the clinical the time. said the government didn't kind of call for any changes in relation well, to Well, in fairness, because of the medical advice that was given, I think you're hardly likely to see non-medical professionals challenge it. Well, be but careful what you have in seen relation to that because I think Henry parents more than anybody say. care about their What you the have seen this child. week is Colm Henry, who's our chief clinical advisor uh, to the HSC and the Department of Health, come out and say that the clinical conditions are now right. Um, in my mind, for once, I think I'll actually agree with you, having had four babies, that the clinical conditions should have always been right. Fathers and partners are not you know, extras in the event of having a baby. They were there at the beginning. They should be there during the middle and the end. And so I think it's very welcome that Colm Henry has written to all of our maternity hospitals today, say no ifs, no buts, no ands. Partners should be there for every part of the journey. Um, and if a hospital has a difficulty with that, for whatever reason, and there obviously are reasons because we don't see a uniformity across the delivery of services, uh, maternal services for women uh, in this country at the moment, they need to stand up and tell us why so that we can fix it. And it may be that you, I don't know if you heard on radio on Saturday, um, the master of the Coombe come out and say because of social distancing, they had to put in prefabs in their car parks. If there are reasons, we need to fix them. And women need to be allowed to have their partners with them at every stage for pregnancy. It's not too much to ask. It's a right end of. 
Very briefly, I want to ask you a little bit about antigen testing and the Mark Ferguson, the chief scientific officer, and various other doctors bring forward a report to recommend its use. And it seems that senior figures in uh, the Department of Health and HSE don't want it. Mm. Shouldn't the government just take a position in relation to going ahead with the chief scientific officer? I think they have, actually. And I I very warmly welcome this because I felt there was an awful lot of mansplaining going on over the weekend. And I don't mean that disrespectfully because it wasn't only being explained to women. We were being treated like we were thick, that we couldn't go into a retail outlet or a chemist and buy an antigen test read the instructions and know its limitations but use it in an effective manner. We were being told basically that we'd lose the run of ourselves and we'd go off and misinterpret it. It's very insulting but it's about a level of control that has existed or we've given to a certain group of people in the last Well, has the government conceded too much control? No, we haven't on this issue because we've got pilots already going on with the Department of Higher Education in two universities. We've Catherine Martin already organising for events to take place in the beginning of June that I think you're probably going to talk about in the next section around the arts and sports and culture. Um, Leo Varadkar is bringing out new um, guidelines next week for employers to use antigen tests. They are not the be-all and end-all of everything, but they are certainly one part of an overall plethora of things that we can use to make sure that people are more confident in their daily goings about whether it's work or whether it's sociability or play and to make sure that we give everybody every opportunity to do so comfortably and be safe. Thank you very much to both of you for being with us here on the programme tonight. After the break, last night the Brit Awards hosted an audience of 4,000 people with no masks and no social distancing. Dare we dream of live music events this summer? Electric Picnic organiser Melvin Benn is very optimistic. Welcome back. Well, we're joined in studio now by DJ, gig curator and music journalist at Nyler.9.com, Niall Byrne. But first, we're going to chat to Festival Republic director and the organiser of Stradbally's Electric Picnic Music and Arts Festival, Melvin Benn, who says he sees no reason why the event can't go ahead this summer. That sounds great, Melvin, but why so optimistic? Well, I guess, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, as, as everybody would have seen today, Leo's telling everybody that um, anybody that wants a virus can have a virus by the end of June. Um, you know, there comes a point at which you you have to accept that the spread of the virus is, uh, you know, slowing, that the uh, potential hospitalizations and, uh, and or deaths are minimizing. And there's a point at which you just have to accept that the pandemic is moving towards uh, a, a less uh, virulent position, uh, a less spreading position and a point at which we can just about get back to our normal lives, I would say that. But if you wanted proof that people had been vaccinated, or if you want, if antigen tests were required before people could go to electric picnic, would that be a solution? I mean, it's, it was certainly a solution for us at the, uh, at the pilot show that we did in Liverpool last week, and uh, it was a solution that worked really, really well. Um, and, and, you know, I, we don't have the results yet, but I'm very positive that the... Uh, results out of Liverpool will be, uh, you know, will show that there was no significant increase in, uh, in, in the town as a result of the concerts going ahead. Um, uh, as I say, I haven't got the results yet, but I, I suspect I would have heard if there had been a significant increase. And I'm hoping to get the results in the next few days. Um, so I, I think it is a solution um, it, it, for, for the Liverpool pilots. We just tested people. We didn't uh, check any vaccination status. 
Um, but what we what we'll be really clear about is that um, you, you know this wouldn't be something that would be available to people only that were vaccinated. Um, you, you know, we would have to accommodate people that were vaccinated or um, chosen not to be vaccinated because I think, it, you know, it's, uh, you know, we want to have a, a universally available festival, really. Now, of course, one of the major costs involved in any festival is insurance. But do you think that you will get insurers who will cover events? Well, that's the challenge. Probably the, I, I, I sort of feel that that's the bigger challenge than the uh, challenge of uh, ensuring everybody there um, at the festival is COVID clear, actually. I think the bigger challenge is, uh, is getting government to uh, underwrite an insurance policy because very clearly the, uh, you know, we've worked really hard trying to get the insurance market to provide that policy uh, and they're not doing so. So um, that I think is the, um, uh, it, it, it will be a real significant test of uh, the government's resolve to uh, effectively put, you, you know, put, uh, the country back to work, I would say. Of course, Glastonbury isn't happening according to the usual way this year. Is that not going to make it more difficult for Electric Picnic to get the, perhaps the headline acts that you would want to persuade people to go to Stradbally? No, I think the Glastonbury thing is completely academic to us here. That, um, you know, the headline acts that play, uh, you know, European festivals in June uh, very rarely play European festivals in uh, late August and early September at the same time. They they have very busy touring schedules. They have, um, uh, you know, and their tours are planned to be, um, you know, economically efficient so that they move from the UK to Ireland, from Ireland to mainland Europe, from, you know, northern Europe to southern Europe, etc., etc. What sort of number would you hope would be allowed to attend the electric picnic if it, if it goes ahead? And how many jobs would that then create, even if it is on a short-term basis? Well, I mean, in, certainly in terms of the number, I would want to be at full capacity. And I think we're at uh, 80,000 people at full capacity now. Um, and uh, in terms of jobs, um, you, you know, the um, uh, I, I'm going to say that during the weekend itself, uh, we've probably got between five and seven and a half thousand people employed on the site. Um, very significant um, employment, very significant tax revenue for the for the government. Um, but actually, as importantly, um, you know, great uh, satisfaction for the people that are able to go out and do the work that they love. Melvin, thank you very much for joining us on The Tonight Show. I'm sure there are many viewers who are really hoping that you will have an electric picnic and that they can get a ticket for it. Thank you very much, Matt. Have a, have a nice evening. Yet, Niall, I wonder, you know, there's, the authorities are saying there won't be a full house in Croke Park for the All-Ireland hurling a football finals yeah. the last two weeks in August. How could you then allow 80,000 people for a long weekend in Stradbally camping out and doing everything else? Yeah, it's hard to see that now, isn't it? I mean, you know, Melvin's obviously going to talk his business up and uh, talk reopening because that's what he wants to do. And obviously, it's totally understandable. 14 months close. It's an unprecedented event to be able to actually have that, like have no business there open for 14 months. And as we've seen before, you know, we have to be cautious, but also we're getting towards some hopeful uh, idea of but, what. But a lot of things have already been put off, aren't they? I mean, a lot of the yeah. gigs that were rolled over from last year into 2021 yeah. seem to have gone into 2022. Yeah. And Longitude isn't happening either. No, well, Longitude can't happen now because it's in July. But to think that 
six weeks later, a 70,000 plus, 80,000 plus, as Melvin said there, could happen. It seems unfathomable right now because last year we had a roadmap for what was happening in the live events industry at least. And at the moment we don't. So when Melvin talks about planning, what we're really talking about here is we don't have a plan for what's happening. And I understand why Melvin would be talking about that. He wants this to happen. We all want this to happen. Because he alluded to the number of jobs that depend on this. There, yeah. there is, I think perhaps wasn't appreciated, a significant number of people who depend on going from gig to gig, don't they, for doing all of the work, yeah. putting it together. Yeah, there's a lot of self-employed people. There's a lot of people who work backstage, lighting uh, designers and backstage crew and security and safety. And people like myself who also work on stages and put on gigs and events. And then then there's the, the industry around that, which is kind of, you know, the things maybe people don't think about, which is like the advertising and marketing that happen around festivals where someone like myself who writes about music can earn money in that way with doing sponsorship deals, all that kind of stuff. So it does have a real effect on people like myself and people who are working in a self-employed capacity. How much hope have you had, though, from recent events, like the one that Melvin referred to in Liverpool, one that was on in Barcelona, and then even having 4,000 people at the Brits last night? Yeah, I mean, they're great to see. And Catherine Martin has talked about pilot events happening here as well also. Um, the latest indication seems to be to try and get that done by July. That's really welcoming because it needs to happen. But I think there's a wider thing here. It's not just about big, big festivals like the Electric Picnic. It's about smaller venues around the country who are still mainly in the dark about how they proceed, what happens with them. You know, last year we had the levels where we were told how many people were allowed indoors and outdoors. At the moment, we, have, we really don't have that roadmap at the yeah, moment. Yeah, even for the nighttime culture, I mean, you're involved with the Luna Club as well. I mean, people want to go clubbing. They want to go out yeah. and have a few drinks and dance and the rest of it. I mean, when do you anticipate that'll be allowed? Well, I think, oh. I think most people in the, in the live music and club industry recognise that we'll probably be the last open. You know, first to close, last to open is often said. Um, but So I think a lot of people have accepted that, but I think just having some idea uh, of when that might happen will be real helpful. Can you imagine yourself having to perform antigen tests at the door? I mean, I think at this point we'll do anything to make those things happen because uh, safety is in a one priority at the moment. Obviously, people want to have a good time when we, things are allowed back open again. But we really do need to be insured. I think a lot of people are still, you know, uh, uh, trepidatious about going back out into the world and, and going to a big gig. You imagine you know, 1,500 people, 500 people, 200 people in a room at the moment. We haven't been able to have that for quite a while. So it's unusual. And also given that it's going to be taken with a time before younger people get their vaccinations. And there also have been reports of more vaccine hesitancy, perhaps, amongst younger people. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a, that's been a, there has been some hesitancy around committing to that. It is good to hear Melvin talk about, you know, we, you can, we can make these events happen. Those events in Liverpool were great and gave a lot of people a lot of hope in the industry with some return to normality. And I don't see why, as the vaccine rolls out, why we can't make sure that those things come back in, that we get antigen tests before and afterwards, um, that those things are baked into the ticket well, price. Well, actually, one thing he mentioned as well was insurance for big events like Electric yeah. Picnic. Is that going to be an issue as well for smaller venues like yours? Yeah, I mean, not, not so much for ours because it's based on the venue itself, but... For big festivals and stuff, that's going to be very difficult because I think in the UK, the UK government wouldn't underwrite the uh, insurance for those big festivals. So a lot of the festivals that were supposed to happen in the UK can't. Any of the bigger promoters like Festival Public maybe are able to put those festivals on because they might have some money there, be able to take that risk. But will the acts also want to be involved? I think all the acts want to be involved at the moment. But, you know, I think, like, 
all of those international uh, acts who might be coming to Electric Picnic in previous years, will they be able to travel? Will they be, like Melvin alluded to there, will you be able to bring route a tour through Europe with differing restrictions, different rollouts? That's going to be a huge, huge logistical nightmare for bands who are trying to make money and go back on tour. Hopefully we'll get it all going again. We have to leave it there. Our thanks to Niall and to all of our guests tonight. I'll be back on Radio and Today FM tomorrow afternoon and back here again with you tomorrow night at 10 o'clock. Good night, stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gays wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com